Appreciate you leading us in such beautiful music. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church, so at this time, you can head out. And for the rest of us, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 18. Now, if you're following along in a pew Bible, that is page 1527. The book of Matthew chapter 18 and uh, page 1527 if you're following along in a pew Bible. As many of you are aware, on June 10th, after the morning service, the elder board made an announcement concerning church discipline. Now, unfortunately, I was out of town. I had planned the trip well before the events leading up to that. And uh, as a result, I had to kind of hold what I had planned to do as far as a message on church discipline off for a little bit. You see, church discipline is something that is mandated in Scripture. There are three primary passages that we're going to look into this morning that deal with it. And so if we're going to be obedient to God's Word, we can't pick and choose the parts that we'll observe and kind of gloss over and run past the ones that are clear commands, but ones that we choose not to observe because they're uncomfortable. Um, There are things that make us feel a little squeamish. We're afraid about how we'll be perceived, any of those things. We have to do what God's Word says because we're committed to the truth of God's Word. And let me begin the sermon by saying how proud I am of our elder board. These are good men. They're godly men. And I'm thankful for each and every one of them. It's a joy to serve with men like these. Um, I love them as brothers and appreciate them deeply. And during times where there's something uncomfortable to do and they take a stand, that makes me love and respect them that much more. So that being said, let's talk about church discipline this morning from the Word of God and let's try and gain some insight into what the Scripture teaches concerning this. There are two basic reasons for church discipline. One reason is this, it's to protect the church. And that's first and foremost. If a person is involved in unrepentant sin and refuses to get right with God, as we'll see in God's Word a little later, that attitude can spread to others. It can cause others to take a similar view toward the truth of God's Word and toward what God calls us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the reasons that the Word of God has church discipline addressed in the Word of God and the Scripture. Let me also share with you the second reason, and that's for the good of the offending party. The idea of church discipline is if a person does not see sin as sin, calling it out, addressing it, is a part of the process that God has designed to shock this person into repentance. Really, church discipline is something that is done in love and concern for the offender and not just for the church body. And those are two of the reasons that we'll see this morning in some of the passages that we're looking into as to why church discipline is done. Now, to many, church discipline seems harsh. Most of us look and say, now, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, we're saying something about this person's sin. I have sinned myself. Um, Let me just say this. If being sinless were a requirement to practice church discipline, we would never do it. 
And I, as a pastor, would have to step down as pastor if sinless perfection were the requirement because I fall far short of sinless perfection. The idea with church discipline, though, is the attitude of the individual towards sin. It's not the fact that they have sinned, it's the fact that they are unrepentant in their sin. Or it's the denial of sin altogether. When God calls something wrong, we shouldn't attempt to say it's right. And if we allow people to say that things are wrong, that are wrong, are right, a lot of confusion comes into the church body. So this is why the Word of God speaks so clearly to the matter of church discipline. And what we want to see are three passages that touch on areas of church discipline so that we can gain a greater understanding. The first passage is Matthew chapter 18. And what we find in Matthew chapter 18 is a scenario that Jesus lays out for us in one of his messages that has to do with a private offense. Now, this private offense is between two individuals. And we need to understand that clearly, whenever you have a lot of people come together, there are going to be disagreements. But this isn't talking about a disagreement. This is talking about a sin where somebody has actually sinned against another person. If you look in Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 15, look at what the scripture says. If a brother or your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Now here's the picture. Someone has sinned against you personally. No one else knows about it. It's just you and this individual. You can do one of two things. You can stuff the sin and hope that by ignoring it will go away. But let me tell you, that just opens the door for bitterness and resentment to come in. Jesus Christ knew that. And so Jesus was saying to the church body, don't allow that resentment to build. Go to that individual privately, just between the two of you, and talk about that offense. Now, here's the goal. Look at the 15th verse. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. In other words, don't run to all of your friends and say, I can't believe what so-and-so just did against me. You don't want to do that. You want to be somebody who understands the importance of building bridges, not walls. And if you go to other people and ask them to join you, in your offense, you've just built a wall and not a bridge because it's going to be harder for that person to respond. We as believers need to understand that if hurts are nursed, grudges develop, it hurts the church body. There's tension that develops. In my first church that I pastored, there was a man in the church who got into an argument with another man in the church over politics. Things became heated and very harmful and frankly unscriptural things were said. And it caused great harm to the man that was the recipient of that harsh language. And so he nursed that grudge. Now this was a church that he grew up in. He had kids there. He had grandkids there. 
And you know what happened? He pulled away from the church because he allowed that hurt to fester and grow. He became bitter. And his bitterness affected his wife because if she was to support her husband, she felt she needed to stay away from the church as well. And it affected the church as a whole because everyone sensed the hurt and the tension that was there leading up to his departure from the church. It was sad. It was unfortunate. They didn't follow the Matthew 18 principle of keeping this private just between the two of them as well. They talked to others about the offense. And as a result, a rift started in the church that was damaging and hurtful to the entire church body. So that's why in this passage, Jesus Christ says that there's a personal offense. There's only two people who are affected, so keep it between the two of you. Don't go and share it with others. Don't talk to other people about the offense itself. Try and keep it contained between the two of you and resolve it just between the two of you. And here's the ultimate goal of that. If you can go and talk to that person, look at verse 15. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Now that's the goal of having an offense resolved. You go and you talk to the individual and you try and resolve it just between the two of you. But here's the issue. Sometimes people don't respond to that overture. The Word of God is clear that we're to go to other people in a spirit of gentleness and Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you will be tempted. The idea of the Word of God is you go to that person understanding that, hey, I'm a sinner too, and talking to that person in a spirit of gentleness. And by the way, the word gentle there is from a word in the original language that means to mend a, a broken bone. You know, if somebody has a broken arm, you don't go up to it and start twisting, saying, well, let's see what's wrong with that. You go to them and you, in a spirit of firmness but gentleness, share with them uh, a, a, a mending of the bone. You, you, you set the bone. It takes force to set the bone, but it also requires tenderness. That's what God wants of us when we approach the individual. And as I said, the goal is to win this person back, to help them to not go and do the same thing they did to us, to other people, but to redirect them. James says this, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. In other words, this person won't get to the place to where they fall into other sins if they respond to your overture. So you see... There's a great deal of responsibility on our part. If someone has sinned us and nobody else knows about it, keep it between the two of you and share with that person their need to repent. But suppose that person refuses. Suppose the person says, hey, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go my own independent way. I'm going to do my own thing. And you know what? If you don't like what I did to you, you can lump it. Suppose that's the response. Notice what the Word of God tells us to do in verse 16. 
In verse 16 it says, But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now here, Jesus is calling upon people to put into practice an Old Testament principle. In the Old Testament law, matters were established by two or three witnesses. So here's what happens. You go to the person who has sinned against you, you talk to them, they refuse, then you take a couple of people with you. And once again, you try to keep it private. If the person responds to what you've said, you you just stay quiet about it. Problem solved. But if they refuse, you take a couple of other people along with you, and the three of you sit down, or four of you sit down, and you try to come to a resolution. Now, why two or three people? Here's the reason. You take the two or three people with you because maybe you're the one that's in the wrong. They're going to judge the matter. They're going to look at it, and they're going to say, wait a minute, maybe you're the one that's wrong in this and not the other person. Or it's to establish that the person who committed the sin indeed committed a sin. It's another layer of opportunity to try and press upon that person that what they've done is wrong and to try and bring about repentance. So the Word of God is calling them to this, and they're calling them to again try and win the brother over to help him understand the error of his ways. But then the passage goes on. Where it has been private up to this point, between the two individuals or between two or three that you bring with you, who are people who can hold a confidence, if there's still refusal to acknowledge the sin, the Word of God says, if he refuses to listen, verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now here's the idea. You go to him, he refuses. Three or four of you go to him, He refuses. So then you bring it to the church. And upon a refusal to respond to the church, then you put him out. Now that is what we do when there is private sin. The last part of the passage where it says you treat him as a tax collector or a pagan, the listeners who would have heard this from Jesus, understood full well what that meant. You see, the tax collector was a traitor to his own people. The way that worked was, by the way, you can work for the IRS and be okay, I just want to say that. But but in this day, the way it worked was this. A tax collector would go and collect as much money as he possibly could. And then the government had a certain fee for the collecting of taxes, And anything he could skim on top of their fee was gravy for the goose, man. He got to keep it. So what the Word of God is saying is that the people considered them to be cheats, and you didn't hang out with cheats during that time. And so what the Word of God is talking about is disfellowshipping the individual who stays in that unrepentant sin. And Jesus wanted his hearers to understand that clearly. Why would Jesus say to not fellowship, not associate with them? Here's why. If you have an individual who remains in the church who doesn't care who he hurts or how he hurts them, how damaging to a church fellowship can that be? We've seen wreckage 
from people who refuse to repent and who insist on harming other people. And many, many people are dramatically hurt by them remaining and being a part of a fellowship. So what God is saying here is don't allow it. Don't allow it to continue. So the first passage we've looked into, that's a private issue, just between two of you. But then turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, for those of you following in the Pew Bibles, that's 1776. An appropriate date with the 4th of July approaching. And what we see here is a public offense with congregational knowledge. Now, this is supposed to be Eli and his two sons, Phineas and Hophni. My Wednesday night Bible study is going through a study of 1 Samuel. And in the second chapter... Eli was a high priest in the house of God. He had two sons who were basically taking the sacrifices that people offered to God and keeping them for themselves. They were directly breaking God's word and God's will. In addition, they were bringing women into the outer courts of the temple and sleeping with them. Again, something forbidden, showing contempt for God's house. So you know what Eli did? He talked to them first and said, boys, you know, clean up your act, cut it out. And Phineas and Hophni just ignored what was asked of them. So you know what Eli did? He just looked the other way. He let it go. He didn't deal with it. He ignored it and hoped that somehow it would resolve itself. And as a result, worship in the temple was brutalized by these two individuals. I think there's a lesson in this for us. For the church, if we state that sin is terrible, that it's an offense to God, and then we give a tacit approval for it by ignoring it, we really send a mixed message. People become confused. Now, at any point, if an unrepentant sinner comes and says, hey, I've sinned and I want to make things right, celebrate. That's a victory. That's exactly what we look for. But there are instances, unfortunately, where a person says, I want what I want, and I'm going to do what I want, and stay out of my way. That's exactly what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want us to take a few moments just to look over this passage. We're going to do a survey of this text. In verses 1 through 5 of this text, we find an apostolic command in the Word of God clearly given to the church to deal with unrepentant sin. When we start in the first verse of the fifth chapter, it says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. In other words, what we're getting from this first verse is there was a situation going on in the church of Corinth where not only was it an offense to the church, But if the world were to see it, they would be offended as well. As a matter of fact, there were laws written on the books 
by the secular government against what was going on. So this was a well-known public sin. And what was the church doing? Look at the second verse. They were proud. Now the sin is identified here in chapter 5, verse 1, as a man sleeping with his father's wife. Many commentators believe that either this was a stepmother or perhaps his father was a polygamist and he was taking one of his other wives. We don't know. But what we do know this is this. When, when, when the church heard about that sin, they ignored it and they were proud of their tolerance. Now, tolerance is something that's valued in our society, isn't it? As a matter of fact, the only sin that our society really sees is being intolerant. They'll say that's wrong, but everything else goes. What we need to see here in the Word of God, though, is this. For a church to say, we believe there are absolutes. There are things that are right. There are things that are wrong. And then to just look the other way when something is wrong and it is done unrepentantly, we should not be proud of our sophistication. Rather, look at what the text goes on to say. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Now, wow, this is intolerant if we look at it from a humanistic standpoint. But when we look at it from the Word of God, the Scripture is telling us there should be two responses to unrepentant sin that is done publicly. Number one, we grieve. Nobody should look at sin and take delight in the fact that somebody's gotten caught in a sin. We need to look at it and say, this is sad. This breaks my heart. That's the grief that we should feel when there's a brother or sister in Christ who gets off track. No rejoicing. No looking at it and saying, oh, this is juicy, man. This is something that I, I can just get going in the gossip mill and really have a field day. I can go to other people and say, I know something you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. And then we can go on and tell other people through gossip. That's not the purpose. We grieve when we find this out. But then there's a secondary responsibility. If they remain unrepentant, you cannot allow them to associate with others. And we're going to see why in just a moment. Now look at verse 3. Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians from another place. And he says this, Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on this individual. We need to think about what Paul is saying here. Put this person out of the church, but understand that you have a responsibility to judge whether or not what this person did is right. Paul passed judgment on the one who did this just as if he were present. And that brings up an important question. The question is this. Is it right to look at sin in other people? I mean, I thought Matthew chapter 7 Verses 1 and 2. By the way, this is the most often quoted Scripture in all of Scripture. But I thought Matthew said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. 
and the measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. Don't I have a responsibility not to judge? Well, let's talk about this for a moment. The most important thing in interpreting Scripture is context. Any text without the context is a pretext for error, and we have to remember that. So what was Jesus talking about in Matthew chapter 7? It's a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is sharing with the Pharisees that they had been wrong in the way they judged others. You see, what the Pharisees would do is construct a system of rules to where it applied to everybody else but not to them. They would find ways of weaseling around things and making sin acceptable by some little loophole that they would find, that they would construct. And therefore, when they would judge people by their standards, the standards applied to everybody else and not to them. What Jesus is saying in this passage really is addressed to the Pharisees. And he's saying, look, don't, don't judge other people because just the, the, the same way that you judge others, that's, that's going to be applied right back to you. Now, there's a more general understanding of this text. And that is this. If I'm guilty of the same sin that I'm looking at someone else and saying that's wrong, I have a responsibility. I need to get that area of my life right with God, then go to that person and talk with them about their sin. So both of those applications apply, but listen. It is not wrong to look at the Word of God and see where somebody transgresses against the Word of God and say that's wrong. That's why the Word of God tells us what's right and wrong. So that we can have a standard. So that we can grasp the authority of God and know where the boundaries are. So part of the responsibility of the church body is to look to the Word of God and say, where are those boundaries? And then call to task those who blatantly ignore the boundaries and say, I will go my own independent way. Look at the last part of this paragraph. If you have an NIV, it's the last sentence in this paragraph. And notice it says this, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of our Lord. What verse 5 is saying is this. It's, it's the same thought as we found at the end of verse 2. Put this man out of your fellowship. And when verse 5 says, hand this one over to Satan, what it's saying is this. Look, this person has enjoyed the love and the community of a Christian fellowship but they're behaving as though there aren't boundaries to be a part of that Christian fellowship. So let them go in the direction that they're headed anyway. And to put it bluntly, let Satan slap them around a little bit and experience the full force, the full brunt of their lifestyle to let them see what they're missing by not experiencing the love and the support of a Christian community. You see, had the Corinthian church said, eh, you know, we'll just continue to ignore the sin of this individual who was sleeping with his stepmother, had they done that, I would submit to you that this person never would have repented. But you know what happened? 
the person did repent. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. The person who was erring in this way is mentioned in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And this is what he says, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. You know what happened? The individual that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 repented. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is telling the church, love this person now that he has repented, bring him back into your fellowship and affirm your love for him. That's the goal of church discipline. That's why God calls us into it. The idea is very much like the prodigal son. What did the father do? He let the son go, and he let him experience the full force of his decision to squander his money, to live in excess. My favorite part of the story of the prodigal son is this part of the passage in Luke chapter 15 when it talks about the prodigal son who had chosen such a wicked lifestyle coming to his senses. And here's what it says. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And remember the story? Before those words could come out of his mouth, the father hushed him and loved him and embraced him and shared with him the forgiveness since he had come to repentance. That's the goal of church discipline. But there's another goal. And that is to protect the church. I want you to look at verse 6. And notice that verse 6 goes on to say, your boasting is not good. In other words, going back to the idea that they weren't really dealing with the sin... They were kind of proud of their sophistication. Paul reminds them that such an attitude isn't good. And then he gives us an illustration. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may have a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with Bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's giving a, an illustration of the Passover celebration. You know what they do in the Passover celebration? It, it was a celebration that remembered how God had spared Israel during a time when Egypt was mastery and Israel was slave. And God went through ten plagues to finally release his people from Egypt. And this was the tenth plague. God brought death to the firstborn of every household unless they took blood and put it on the doorposts of their home. Then they were passed over. And there was a Passover celebration that was established to remember this. And you know what part of that celebration was? Part of the celebration, even now in Jewish homes, for the Passover is this. They go through the house and they look for yeast. 
and if there's any yeast, they throw it out. As a matter of fact, part of the tradition now is the wife will take a little yeast and hide it somewhere, and the, the dad and the kids have to hunt for it until they find it so that they can put it out in the trash. But you know, these symbols are more than just traditions. They're also illustrations for us. Yeast, very often in Scripture, symbolizes sin. And here's why it symbolizes sin. Yeast spreads. Those of you who are bakers, put a little bit of yeast in a lump of dough, and what happens? It works its way throughout. You can't say, hey, I'll have a little yeast in this lump of dough, and it'll be okay because I'm going to make part of it leavened and part of it unleavened bread. No, you let the yeast sit in there, and what happens? The whole dough becomes leavened. That's kind of the way sourdough works. You have a little piece of sourdough, you work it into a big lump of dough, and then the whole dough becomes sourdough. When I was in San Francisco, it was interesting. They had a restaurant that bragged that they had the same uh, sourdough from the 1800s. To me, that sounded kind of gross until someone explained to me what was going on. They save a little bit out of the fresh lump of dough and put it into the new batch. So what's that saying to the church? What it's saying to the church is this. You can't look at sin and say it's inconsequential. We have Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself for that sin. That's how serious sin is. For us to look at it and say, you know, it really doesn't matter if we address it or not. Wrong. The illustration that the Word of God gives us here is get it out. Deal with it. If you have sin in your life, repent. If you have sin that is unrepentant in the church, deal with it. Don't allow it to fester and to spread. That's what the Word of God tells us in this passage. And that's why we come to the last part of this point, And that is, put the unrepentant out of the fellowship. Look at verse 9. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Now, here's a point we need to understand as Christians. We should never expect someone who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior to behave like they do. It's not going to happen. And they need us to interact with them so that we can share the truth of Jesus Christ with them, so that we can be ambassadors for Jesus Christ to a lost world. That's a part of our responsibility. That's what God calls us to. But then the text goes on. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. These are all very public sins that are mentioned. When a person is sexually immoral, that gets out, and it's a blight on the testimony of the church. The same with a greedy person. People get to know this individual as a greedy person and they look at them and they say, there's no love in this person. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm supposed to have love and generosity, not greediness. And if I develop the reputation of being a greedy person, I hurt the testimony of the church. What about an, an idolater? When I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, that means I no longer worship 
other things. Now, in the first century, being an idolater involved going to the temple, and in Corinth, going to the temple often involved going to temple prostitutes. So there was a direct relationship even between the sexual immorality and the idolatry, and it became a very public thing. So it was something that God was saying was wrong, and you shouldn't be associated with those things. And then a slanderer. This is also translated a reviler. This is the type of person that casts aspersions on everybody. They're mean. They're nasty. Again, a poor reflection on the testimony of the church. And then the same with a drunkard or a swindler. Somebody who cheats in business or somebody who's just publicly intoxicated on a consistent basis. Those are things that become public sins. And so here the Word of God is warning against that, that, that as a church body, you shouldn't have a person with an unrepentant lifestyle of sin in any of these areas that are so public as a part of your church. In a previous church, we had a man who was a notorious swindler as a businessman. Why he was allowed to serve in the church, I have no idea. Perhaps political expedience or something of that nature. I don't know. But I'll never forget one Sunday, in earshot of me, some people walked in and saw him as an usher. And they said, if that's the kind of person that goes to this church, we're out of here. And they turned around and walked out. We don't want to be those people that someone would look at and say, if that's the kind of person that's in this church, I'm out of here. We want to be the kind of people that folks will look at and say, if that's the kind of person that comes to this church, I want part of it. I want to be a part of this church. And so that's why it's important. That's why the Word of God calls us to do this. Look, verse 12 points out, we don't have any business judging those outside the church. That's up to God. But if we have an unrepentant lifestyle of sin in the church, we have a responsibility to confront them. Third and final passage, this one's much shorter. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Now, that's 1859 in the Bibles. And this is a, a third and final situation where the church has practiced church discipline. When there's a political offense that divides the church body. Now, by political, I'm not talking about Democrat or Republican, okay? They both have their own offenses. What I'm talking about in this passage is when somebody causes division in the church and they become partisan in the sense that they develop an us and them sort of mentality. I grew up in a church... And there was a man who split the church three times. Each time he would say, God has called me to plant a church, and his model of church planting was to go into the church and draw as many people as he could away by criticizing the leadership and insisting that he had a better way and persuading them to follow. The first time he did it, his church died within the year. So he came back and tearfully asked for forgiveness, only a year later to do the same thing. So as you might guess, that church didn't survive. 
came back and did an even more convincing job that he had really turned over a new leaf, seen the error of his way, did it a third time. As you might guess, after that, the church said, no more chances. <laughs> We've been burnt. Not going to happen again. This is what Titus speaks about. Here in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. If there is a pattern of divisive behavior, it has to be addressed by the church body. Notice the 10th verse says this, Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time, and after that have nothing to do with him. There are some people that just love turmoil. They love to come in and stir things up. And very often they stir it up for personal gain. If I can get people in my camp mad at these people over here, then that gives me a sense of power. That's why they're so dangerous to the church body. As a church, there's a responsibility of the leadership when they see divisive behavior taking place. And by the way, this was addressed to Titus as the pastor. And I would submit to you that he also involved his elders. But he had a responsibility to warn the divisive person once and then if they see it continue twice, and then there was a final response, and that is to have nothing to do with them. We are to place the unrepentant divider under church discipline. I like a comment that I found in the Holman Bible commentary that says this, church discipline is still necessary Unfortunately, few churches take it seriously enough to act with courage and boldness when necessary. The pervasive philosophy of tolerance along with the desires of being inoffensive drives the church to compromise. To ignore the harm of false teaching or to overlook continued sin is to render a disservice to the church and the offending believer. Allowing sin to continue will never rescue a person from disobedience. The passage here in verse 11 goes on to talk about the character flaws of the person who is divisive. And I want you to look at what it says. After we're told, warn a divisive person once, warn him a second time, and after that have nothing to do with him, we see this you may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Here's the idea. They're first of all twisted if they're a divisive person. Twisted means that they are distorted. They take things and they twist them and spin them so that there's a personal advantage to what's done. That's why the Word of God warns against divisive people. They will take half-truths they will take statements, take them out of context, twist them, and try and make it appear as though wrong has been done when there hasn't, or when wrong has been done, that it's right. That's what it means to be twisted. The word also means perverted, to be going in the wrong direction, a counter direction to what is true. So that's why the Word of God warns against it. And then secondly, they're sinful. In other words, they miss the mark of God's truth. They have no concern about what is right or wrong. They choose to do what they want to do, and that's their standard. The church is warned against people who operate in that way. And then finally, they're self-condemned. 
And what does it mean to be self-condemned? To be self-condemned means they are accused by their own actions. Really, they don't even need somebody outside them to say what you did is wrong. Their own actions prove them to be wrong. But self-condemned can also mean this. They are self-judged. The word condemned can also be translated judged. And here's the idea. Do you ever notice that when you sin, often the consequences of your own sin are definitely a judgment that I have to work through? God understands that sometimes we have to feel the full brunt of the choices that we've made to learn that we ought not to do that again. Being self-condemned can also carry with it the idea that the individual is experiencing the full outcome of the choice that they've made. And sometimes a part of that outcome is being put out of a fellowship of believers that has been their support group, their church family. To feel that experience is saying to them, what you did is wrong, you need to reconsider, you need to repent. And that's why the Word of God says, don't have anything to do with them so that they can experience it. When we had the story of the prodigal son, the father didn't go after the son and pursue him and try to win him back. He let the son experience the self-condemnation of the choice that he made. And in so doing, the son repented. The same thing happened in 1 Corinthians with the sinning brother. The church put him out because of his actions, his behavior, and he responded ultimately by turning to Christ. It's such an important thing for us to understand that this is what God wants of us as a church body to lovingly, but most of all, obediently follow what God says in His Word, whether it's a private sin, whether it's a public sin, whether it's a political sin. This is how God wants His church to operate. So as a leader of Oaklawn Bible Church, this is something that the elder board has committed themselves to and I've committed myself to. During my 18 years of ministry here in this church, you can count on less than one hand the number of times that church discipline has been enacted. But when it is enacted, it's done biblically. We seek to follow God's word. That's our model, that's our standard, and that's what we do. So my encouragement to you as a church body is number one, just pray for our church body. Pray that we will be consistent and committed to God's word, no matter where it leads us, no matter what it leads us to do, that we find the word of God to be something that is real and relevant and something that we should apply to every situation. Will you pray with me that that would be done? And then secondly, to pray for those who are out of fellowship with the Lord that they would come to the place to where they see the error of their ways and to where they commit themselves to repentance and to restoration. I want to just offer something to you. If any of you have questions about the process or what has been taught this morning, I would invite you to talk with me 
or to talk with one of our elders, speak with them about what God's Word says in regard to this. And then pray with them. In the most recent situation of church discipline that we've experienced, we have hearts that are broken. We want to see God work in the lives of those who are under it. So pray for that. Pray that they will experience that repentance and that desire to follow Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you.